any chore, any job, and I think that that's what writing is. It is not waiting for the inspiration. It is not, you know, I'll just find a tower and become a Hemingway. I mean, you put hours and hours and hours into it. Joyce Carol Oates oftentimes will not even talk about the creative process. It's so painful for her until she, you know, has something on the page. And I would like for people to like what they read and to like my voice, to like my style, to know that they're reading something worth their time. So, work. It's work. Then there's no two ways about it. No, it's work. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Mary Power, a local author, writing instructor, and speaker. Mary earned her MFA in creative writing in 2010 from the University of Southern Maine and twice has been the recipient of literary fellowship from the Delaware Division of the Arts. Her writing has been published locally, nationally, and internationally, and her latest collection, Traveling Moons, is set to hit shelves very soon. So welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad to see you again. Uh, You and I were both judges for the recent uh, Rehoboth Beach Reads Mm -hmm. uh, short story contest. I was so impressed with you uh, when we met because Mary came in with... This was the first time I was ever a judge, and I know you've been a judge uh, many, many times, but this is the first time I was ever a judge. So I just kind of rolled in with like my iPad where I'd made notes about, you know, all these stories. Mary rolls in with like notes and like critiques of everything, and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, and everyone's (laughs) going to know it. (laughs) So you've been, I don't want to say a career judge, but you get asked to judge a lot. I do. I've been judging... I've been judging horse shows. I judge writing competitions. I don't know. I guess I have an ability to hold that standard. And then whatever you want the contest to reflect, I can read to that. And then I never remember what I've read. So that even if I know you as a writer, I'm always unbiased. And um, it takes a lot of time. And there's no... there's. Usually, you're anonymous, except for Beach Reads, where everybody knows who we are. And our judges' comments, I think, are important, because I do read for the craft, or I do read for the dialogue, or I do read for whatever the category asks. Sure. And I read for the New Rivers Press, probably 40 manuscripts a year. Wow. So I've been judging, yeah, possibly 10 years. One of the things you said is the judges' feedback, and, and that's something that I'd like you to talk a little bit more about, because a lot of times, as, as someone who submits a lot, a lot of times you get like, no, thank you. You know, this is, this is the best thing I ever read. It's just not right for us now. Have a nice day. I don't do that kind of judging. <laughs> I judge in contests. Mm-hmm. So you already know ahead of time, and the feedback that I'm going to give you is actually part of the contest. Some journals will say, we hope you find a home. Right. Sonder Review sent me three paragraphs on how I could improve the piece that they did not accept. And I was thinking, this is wonderful. Yeah. So I take it and I rework it and send it back out. And I'm hoping that other people do. But usually it's um, a variety of manuscripts that come and I just judge them. I never see the final part. I do the first two or three tiers. And same thing with 
the press association or the federation. You get a category. I have no idea. They want those judges' comments. I give them, but I don't. I'm not an editor for a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would be terrible at it because I would have to publish everybody because I just there's always something in a piece that just strikes you. It would be hard for me to run a subscription. Right. I would I would just be beside myself. There is a level of respect of the writer when you take the time to say, hey. This is how you can improve the piece. It's like, yes, it's something that people value, and I don't think we get enough of. Uh, and so often you'll see a writer say, "Well, they just don't get me," you know. And this is something we talk about a lot. And I'm like, hey, you know what? If 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 I don't get you, then I'm your audience. I should get you. That's the point. I, I agree with you. I think that's why I love the short story so much, and that's really my specialty. And that's because right in the definition, the reader's included. Mm. So right away, you know that you do have an audience. And my suspicion is anybody who isn't gotten probably hasn't expressed him or herself as well as they could. could yes. <laughs> and my thought is revision, go back and do it. You know? right. So Yeah. And I think that was one of the other things that I noticed uh, when I was a judge with you. You really genuinely seemed to take each piece and give each piece its time mm-hmm. and to say, okay, this was not a strong piece, but here's something I did like about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really... Cause it was hard for me as a first-time judge because I was basically like, just pick what I like and kind of figure out why that I liked mm-hmm. it. And, and I knew we had parameters. And so I kind of had these loose parameters in my head. When I sat down at the table next to you and then I kind of was like, you know, being in school, you look over and you're like, oh, look at those notes, you know? And I saw where you had really taken the time to give everyone that attention. I was really impressed with that because I was like, man, this lady knows her stuff and knows how to run this thing. She knows what she's looking for and I should be better prepared next time I come to class. <laughs> I need to have it written out and I need to have all my little marks and I have my own rubric I go through and you know, I pile everything around me. And I mean, I have a system as we all do, I think. And if I could use a little iPad, I probably would be able to, but I can't do columns and rows, you know, and then it's easier by hand. But yes, I feel that every story demands the respect from the reader and demands some sort of feedback even if it's just among the judges or from a magazine coming down to you from a journal. Right. Um, And I think that that's a way that I can share and give back. So I would encourage all people to get feedback on what they've written, you know? I don't know. And now let's talk a little bit about you as a writer and starting out writing and the transition from this is something I like to do to this is something I need. In 2006, I took a friend to a free write in Dewey Beach. And as you know, I live on the other side of the county, so I don't really know where Dewey Beach is. And we were driving around like crazy people. I overshot it, got back, and I sat in a free write. And from that moment on, I decided somehow I needed to get into the creative writing. Some of my early writing has been fin cycling abuse in five major cities, things that you wouldn't you know, want to read, mm. even in your desperate moments. <laughs> um, so I've been, I always wrote But those bad habits of, you know, let me tie this up, you know, by way of introduction, all of those things, I had to break those habits. So it was 2006. I think the first time I felt really good about a piece, I burst into tears and then I knew that I had done something. And I need to have that feeling every once in a while. So I keep keep plugging, although sometimes it's hard to separate your writing life from your other life or you have to make time for it. And I don't know even what the it is. Is it the time to read something that you know you should read to get better? Is it time to edit? Is it time to just think? Writing is an, a multifaceted experience. And a lot of times I do my best writing on the horse or 
<laughs> right. on the tractor. What can I say? You know, it's, yeah. it's not just always sitting down and, and, and facing the keys with anguish. Barbara Lockhart, who was a judge with mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. I remember one time, because I said to her something about that I wasn't, I wasn't writing. And I've always had this connotation that, that writing is sitting down, fingers on the keys, pen in hand during the writing. And she said, Stephanie, if you think about the amount of time you spend thinking about writing or thinking about how you're going to craft something or thinking about the questions in a piece or the problems in a piece, if you think about the time you spend researching and reading, she said, that is part of writing. Oh, yes. She said, so it's not just the, the there's... The writing is just not the one thing, you know. And when she said that, it was almost like a little light bulb went off in my head. And I was thinking about that when you were just saying that just now, that I have to make time for it. What is it? Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's a cube. There's, there's all these different sides that have different meanings, to, but it's you know feeds into the whole piece. When you say make time for it, I literally mean make time to sit down and, and do the typing part of it. I can't have anything in front of me. It drives my wife bananas. Like, uh, I need to have four clear hours if I'm going to bother typing. And if I have three hours and 15 minutes, I'm done. Like for real writing, like what my, I write for my job, which is a different thing altogether because when there's a deadline, you're like, yes, this has to get finished now. And, you know, and also not all work can be your best work. And that, that helps when it's something that I, when I'm trying to find a way to express what I've been thinking about as I'm walking around or as I'm going through the day, I'm like, okay, this is the kernel. Let's see what we can build from it. I need to make sure I have time in front of me on the off chance that I start to write something good. Like a lot of times I'm like, nope, this isn't working today. And 10 minutes later, I'm done. But sometimes you hit that groove and you just start to feel into the rhythm. And if anything disturbs that, it's for me, it's very precarious. But for lots of people I've heard, when once you get disturbed from that kind of thing, it's it breaks the magic and you know, you've got to start again. I agree with you. I think that the definition of the short story to be read in one sitting I like to lay it out in one sitting. And exactly as you speak, if there's something happening in an hour and I know I need that time, I I cannot. I can do other things. But But it hangs over you. Yes, that creative moment has to be my moment for forever. And I have a library that has great books and the view overlooks the pasture. And I can sit in there. And sometimes I don't get up until all of a sudden I have a crink. <laughs> it's six hours later. Yeah. Oh my gosh, but I have something. My back hurts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I love that rough draft because it's all there, you know, and the crappier the rough draft, the better I feel because I know that I don't have to, I don't have to worry anymore. It's all there. And now I can just sit back and approach it without it that, yeah, without that, almost that heartbeat that is irregular. Because you, there's a worry that if you don't get it out, you're going to forget it. Yes. Not, not forget the idea, but forget the feeling that goes with the mm-hmm. idea. And that's what you want to get out. You want to you get out the turn of the phrase that reminds you how to feel when you go back and edit it again later on. Mm-hmm. You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with local author and writing instructor, Mary Power. But for you, I mean, you've been able to translate those really rough drafts and those hours, you know, sitting at that desk. You've been able to translate that into real success with getting published in reviews. I mean, just this summer, you're in the Broadkill Review, mm-hmm. and you've got a piece in Rehoboth Reimagined. Um, and we, we just had Cindy Hall on the podcast, and uh, I mentioned you were going to be coming by. She was like, she's in the book. And I was like, of course, Mary Bowers in the book, you know? <laughs> when I started looking at your resume, I'm like, wow, I mean, you're really 
publishing far and wide. So you went from this moment in a free write class, like I got to do this thing. And you've really been able to translate that to actual success. Not every writer is able to move in that, to move that way. And perhaps I've been fortunate or I have that work ethic and I'm an immersion kind of person. Once I decide I'm going to learn something, I, I just have this need to, to do the best I can when it's in front of me. If, I've, if I'm going to make the effort, you know, like if I don't have the four hours, I'll do something else. Um, if I'm going to write, I can't be embarrassed by what you read. And I do write for others. I'm not a diarist. I'm yeah. not a journalist. I'm vain. I want you to read. I want you to like it. I want you to say, oh, yay. You know, I, I mean, I need that. And if I'm going to want that, I have to give something to get it back. Wow. So, yeah, I, I push. And, and that's clearly evident from the ability for that immersion, the ability to say, I want to do this seriously. Because I think some of us want to do it seriously, but the action doesn't always kind of follow up to that or at least I feel that way sometimes like I really want to write seriously but then you know I'm like well but I'm tired I'll worry about it another time but I mean you're really doing the hard work every time you go at it it seems like anyway yeah I I think and I suspect it's a personality issue more than (laughs) more than a craft issue any chore any job and I think that that's what writing is it is not waiting for the inspiration it is not I'll just find a tower and become a Hemingway I mean you put hours and hours and hours into it and Joyce Carol Oates oftentimes will not even talk about the creative process it's so painful for her until she you know has something on the page and I would like for people to like what they read and to like my voice to like my style to know that they're reading something worth their time. So work, it's work. Then there's no, no way two ways it. about it. No, it's work. So when you started like submitting things to get to, to get them published, I think there, there are two things newer writers kind of run up against. The first is the massive amount of rejections that some of us tend to get. The, the other is the idea that you just have to, it's something that you have to do, like you said, like a job. You have to write. If you if you're waiting to be inspired, you're 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 going to be waiting a long time. Once you start writing, you know it'll it'll the the inspiration will come from what you're already doing. So how did you find out how to how did you find out when something wasn't ready to go out, other than you weren't happy with it? The program, the master's degree program that I took, was very hands on. So we always had mentors, and my thought was I've got to find a mentor. Um, I've been in critique groups. They're a little tough for me. Perhaps I don't really know how to use them. I would really prefer a generative workshop where uh, you sort of have a soft critique going on because I think that's more helpful because you get the immediate, oh my gosh, this could be really great. And then you can go off even though you know it's not totally formed mm. or you can see people's expressions and if it's not going anywhere, then you have something to work with. I went and I bought all those short story books collections and then I went in the back and I looked at all the journals and then I just started to investigate them and at one point I was told you need 15 pieces out so your first top five your second and then your go-to and sometimes like the Alaska Quarterly is fonder of East Coast people so you might have a little edge and of course if you know someone it's not going to make your writing any better but at least you have a little bit of an entree I think that's a, a successful way for a new writer to start publishing. But I think you need to know where you're going and, and why you're publishing, not just 
to throw it out there. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that, that you said, it's, it's certainly true for nonfiction that it's really, really, it's always been difficult for me to get a pitch picked up. But once, once you have the editor's email and you're like, what do you think about this? They're like, yes or no. And it just, it makes it easier to send the email and yes. it makes it easier to do the writing. And so I guess it, I didn't, it didn't occur to me, but why wouldn't it? If a journal editor is familiar with your work, then they're going to see your name and read it. Yes. Like, okay. This isn't going to be a waste of my time. If I don't like the first paragraph, I might punch through anyway, because I've been surprised by this writer before. Exactly. Whereas, whereas that's something that doesn't happen when it's your first time working with an editor. They're like, no, um, I have 30 of these to read and this didn't get good fast enough and I have to keep moving on. You don't know who else has submitted. So if they already have three romance stories, I don't care how good yours is, it's not going to get in. Right. If if the issue only has two pages for prose and you've turned in much more than that, the odds of getting selected, no matter how great your piece is, are very small. And that's why I say I think you need to do a lot of homework having nothing to do with the writing, but is this where you want to send your piece? And you have to have a thick skin. I've been rejected many times, yeah. not just as a writer. So, I mean, that's life, you know? <laughs> And I've done some rejecting, so there you go. Right. You know, what goes around comes around, I think. But I think that there's a, a romantic aspect to writing that is untrue. Counter, counterproductive. I think it's counterproductive, I and so I think too. it's untrue, because oh God, yeah. so many people would love to write, and I think they get discouraged, because, well, shoot, it should have just fallen right out and, and be perfect. Carver, without his editor, his stuff was awful, just awful. And he's not the minimalist that we that we know today without that other person. And I'm very fond of the one-on-one. -on -one. Groups make me nervous. You also want someone who you have the kind of relationship with where they can speak honestly with you and say, yeah, this isn't working for me. It's not someone who's just trading time for a critique of their own. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, for me, I, I have found more benefit in the one-on-one -on -one mentor mentee relationship. I think I got that from college. I went to Washington mm -hmm. college mm -hmm. and, uh, my senior year, you know, we all, all the seniors there are working on their Sophie Kerr portfolios. And I was fortunate enough to have two really great professors that I worked with. And I think for me as a young writer, that really sealed my way of understanding how to refine a piece with an editor. And so I've been fortunate to, in, in my writing life now, to have found, you know, three or four people that I can say, okay, I'm not going to have my feelings hurt by what they say, because I know they're really good at what they do. And, you know, so I, I don't take it personally. And I think that in that mentor mentee relationship, you can find someone that you can, they can just be brutal about a piece and you can mm -hmm. not and take mm -hmm. it from there. Talking about that mentor-mentee relationship, I know that you also teach. Mm -hmm. So do you sort of impart a lot of these sort of like lessons that you've learned along the way and to them or is your teaching more of a nuts and bolts of how to do the writing thing? I think it depends. I have some private clients and we'll, we'll do the gamut. Okay. If I'm in a particular classroom, I might have to teach literary criticism because that's what is being asked. This spring, I'll be with the Chesapeake uh, Maritime Museum for their adult learning, and I'm doing Who Loves Short Shorts? And we're going to do short fiction, 2,000 words and under, and oh, we're, wow. we're going to start you know, with the six word and sort of move on up. Those are adults. Children, I taught a poetry class at the Biggs when I was the artist in residence there, the literary artist in residence, and there were eight children between the ages of five and nine. There were four of us. And I had this whole color thing planned in the little children. And the one girl says, well, my brother doesn't know how to print. 
I said, okay, we'll do it in color. We'll do crayons. I walked out of there. I must, I was just exhausted. Yeah, children, <laughs> yeah. you know, little Poetry pe- with children. Yeah, little people, whoa, they're just, they're just so imaginative. And I, and I worked with, you know, 10th graders, 11th graders that were, you know, college bound and uh, the creative process. So I do whatever the situation asks for. If it's a generative workshop, that's what we do. If it's a critique, that's what we do. If it's six weeks and we have all the time in the world, then I would, would really like to have the, the class become an amalgam of what you need as a student and what I know how to teach. And right. I think that works the best. And so you kind of do it all. I mean, short story, prose, fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, you sort of really run a gamut. Like, I'd be terrified, even with children, to think about teaching poetry as I'm terrible at poetry. <laughs> The fact that you just kind of run through all these pieces, I think, is sort of sort of incredible. Do you, do you find that your writing process is different for the different uh, types of writing that you do, or is it all in all the time? I don't know that I have the answer to that. Oh, that's fine. I've, no, I'm just curious because <laughs> um, I, I can't could do not. It. I could not possibly teach poetry at a, at a, at a level that any poet would be excited about. But when you're five, right. six, and seven. Um, <laughs> The real thing is that I had the right. courage to go in front of those little children, right. sure, sure. Know, they, it, it, and they had just had snacks, so they were just a little, just a little wired, and it was great fun. But I, I felt that writing has so much to offer that it would, I would be remiss if I didn't try creative nonfiction. If I didn't try, I tried a novel, and I just do not want to write a novel. And I, I have come to that, and I'm very comfortable with that now, although for two years, I just thought, okay, everybody says you have to write a novel. I'm going to write it. What was the tipping point where you're like, no, this isn't for me? The name of the piece, it was the story of Lizzie Borden and her sister. Whoa, okay. And the two sisters had quite a relationship, the murder aside. And I had been working, 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 and I, and I actually had a, an agent say, give me 40 pages, don't talk to anybody, you know, when you're finished, send me this. So it wasn't that I didn't have the outside support. I just couldn't, couldn't go any further with it. And somebody said to me, well, so who killed him? Who killed the parents? I said, that's not what I'm writing about. And it turns out that every single Lizzie Borden situation, that question always comes up and that's always overshadows. So no matter how good I was. You're still just going to be answering the same question. Yes, and I just thought, you know... Why am I doing this when I love the short story? I love the the depth of the story. You know, it's like a, an auger. You just go down in the layers. I don't want to go across the way a novel is structured. I like that deep exploration. So I just said, I'm not, I stopped. I'm not writing a novel. I'm never writing, you know, and I went back to writing what I want to write, which I, is the greatest recommendation I have for any writer not to be swayed by what people think you should be writing or what maybe you were good at before you started writing. You write what you want to write and see where it takes you. And then figure out how to do it well. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> find somebody who knows a tiny bit more than you do or find a workshop or go to Breadloaf in Italy. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, do it. Just do it. And that's, that's the best advice. You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with local author and writing instructor Mary Power. Now, I don't want to wrap up the podcast before talking about Traveling Moons. Okay. Uh, that's coming out. Could you tell us a little bit about Traveling Moons? And it, I know that it's a, a collection of nature-inspired pieces, or would you tell us a little bit about them? Traveling Moons is a hybrid of prose and poetry, and it's based on the 20-some-odd years that I've lived on the farm. And so it's, it's nature, prose, and poetry. 
I believe everything in there has been published somewhere before. So me and Irene cruising the dual highway is the story of my mom and I, and that was in Delaware Beach Life. We Do Dirt is in this collection, and that came from Delaware Today magazine. Some of the poetry came from um, anthologies to help wildlife. And if I may, if I may put a tiny little sure. plug in there, um, last October I adopted an 11-year-old quarter horse who had been seized. And 11 horses were seized and two were so malnourished that they did not make it. So I have him there. And there's a part of the proceeds, if this book ever gets to where it's supposed to go, that will go to Kent County, which is where they have the horse... um, facilities. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, like so that's where I got, yeah, so a portion of it will go there. So that's where them. I got him from. Yes. Oh, and wonderful. so that's for that. Oh, that's lovely. And, um, it's just some of it's, some of it's like the booty call, uh, you know, some <laughs> right. of it's black snake, some of it's a little serious, some of it's, some of it's a little sassy, but you know, it's when you're out with nature, it, it's a very different thing to live very close to it than it is if you go to a zoo and just, you know, point at the animal. I mean, these animals are very close. Right, right. Now, how, but, and so did you just take everything you've ever written about nature? How did, how did, you, how did you decide what was going to make it and what's not? The, one of the past presidents from ESWA recommended that I do it, get all my poetry, pull it together, and it was scattered everywhere, and uh, he recommended an editor, and I went with her, and I gave her the pile and said, look, help me, and she organized it, and we went through the process together, and I guess that's why I really feel that that mentor is so important, because I knew that she only had my peace on her mind when we were working together. And that was very gratifying. So I could go through all of the oopses and I can't find this and I had to get copyright releases, which I didn't realize I needed. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So there some was a, stuff that had been published before. And oh, yes. And, oh, okay. and some of it reverted to me, but I had to prove that because, you know, it goes through, le- you know, your, your manuscript goes through legal and everything has to be documented. I know now that I should have had a file that said what should happen. For example, in the, in the Rehoboth Reimagined, those rights will revert to me, and I now have a file that says so from that story, so in case I want to do something with it. And I, you know, there was a lot of stuff I had no idea how to get it together. It's not like submitting to a magazine or to a journal. You know, it was way over the top. So it took almost a year to get it all together. And um, there were some places I had to fix and make better. And hopefully it's going to go out, and hopefully I'll be, you know, invited back here, maybe do a little reading or whatever. I don't know where it's going to go. I'm just very excited about it. Now, is that who was your publisher for that? How did you decide to move in a direction with that? It's an offshoot of Simon and Schuster. Oh, fantastic! So I went with them, and I honestly can't tell you why. It felt right. Stop laughing. I do that. No, it feels right. Well, what's, what's interesting is the next time you're on, you'll either tell us why it was an excellent decision or why it was a terrible decision. You'll know after, right? I think up to date, it's an excellent decision. I've not had any problems. The only issue, and I'm disappointed about that, is I don't have 108 pages, so it can't come out in hardback. That was a little distressing, you know, these page counts and everything. I'm th- I can't create 30 pages in 10 minutes. What do you... Right. You know? Do you know how hard it was to get what I got? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I 
just had wanted to say Please. I am involved in a project with the Delaware Humanities Forum, and it's a whodunit, and it's modeled on a true detective cliffhanger storyteller, so it makes the reader anxious for next week, and we explore the fascinating places in Delaware for the elementary school population, and it's, oh, cool. um, it's a serial, and I'm one of the authors. My part was on the Nanticoke River, oh, that's so that, a, that's a whole new area for me, and we're such a small state, so it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> True that. You know what's even smaller than Delaware? <gasps> oh, I Your could. limericks. Oh, yes. I mean, sorry. Oh, even a limerick. Okay. Yes. How can they get them if they want them? Yes, if you would like a limerick by Tony or a haiku by yours truly, go to our website, which is www.sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com. Click on the contact us link. Just give us your name and address. If you pick a word, Tony will put it into a limerick. I will take that same word, put it into haiku. We're going to put it on a fancy schmancy postcard, put a stamp on it, and we'll pay a guy to bring it to your house. Just like it's 1853. It might come on a pony. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, Stephanie, and that's a part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Mary, thank you so much for coming and being a part of our, our podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.